Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, April 1918. The local chairman of the Liberty Loan Committee frantically stops a precocious Harrisburg boy from committing a prank upon their upcoming guests. The boy promised he'd avoid hitting any ladies present, but wanted to amuse his target. The Liberty Loan Committee chairman was not enthused and did not want the prank to reflect poorly on their modest city. The prank? Throwing a pie at the guest. The boy's target? Charlie Chaplin. But why was Chaplin visiting? In this episode of Showman's Land, entertainment for the U.S. war effort in World War I, I'll describe Chaplin's role in the Third Liberty Loan Tour in April 1918, the films he made months later to support the war effort, how audiences viewed him, and how he thought about his identity as an immigrant and as a war effort fundraiser. First, allow me to introduce him. Charlie Chaplin emigrated to the U.S. from England sometime in 1910 as a touring music hall entertainer. After movie producer Max Sennett discovered him, Chaplin signed to act in comedies for Keystone Pictures in 1914. Chaplin's second film, Kid Auto Races at Venice, starred his best-known character The Tramp, whom he played for over 25 years. The Tramp had an odd appearance, a small bowler hat, a toothbrush mustache, a tight jacket, large baggy pants, large outturned shoes, and a thin bamboo cane. People today who have never seen a Chaplin movie probably still know the Tramp as he is forever part of Hollywood history. Chaplin used the Tramp in a variety of situations throughout the 1910s. He became more and more popular with national and international audiences. By 1918, Chaplin controlled all parts of movie making beyond just starring in them. He also produced, directed, wrote, composed, cast, and more. While Chaplin's early movie career blossomed, war ravaged Europe. The U.S. government saw Chaplin's success and popularity with all American audiences, so it decided to use his and other entertainers' fame for the war effort. In early 1918, according to Chaplin, the federal government requested that he, along with famous movie stars Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, tour the U.S. to sell Liberty Loans. It would be like all of the actors in the Marvel movie franchise raising money for a cause today. Liberty Loans, or bonds, were simply a way to raise money to finance the Allied war effort through borrowing. The Federal Reserve teamed with organizations and individuals to make bonds patriotic to the American cause. Sometimes, other movie actors like Marguerite Clark and Marie Dresler joined them. The trio featured prominently in the Third Liberty Loan Tour throughout the U.S. Despite never seeing the war front themselves, Chaplin and other movie stars boosted fundraising efforts with their images. Maybe the most available medium during the war, movies featured people like Chaplin throughout the U.S. and the world. An announcement for an upcoming Liberty Loan Tour stop in D.C. gave an energetic approval of the stars, and I quote, Gee, movie fans, look here! Did you ever even dream in your wildest moments of imagination that you'd ever get a chance to see these stars, Mary Pickford with her spiritual beauty, Douglas Fairbanks with his infectious grin, and Charlie Chaplin, the Wiggly, film comedians? This advertisement attracted readers with this almost once-in-a-lifetime chance to see these familiar figures. Also, 
They defined the trio's well-known characters to market to audiences, the Liberty Loan Tour's goals to sell bonds. On a large scale, one of the Liberty Loan stops in New York City had excited crowds that came to see the movie talents. Around 30,000 people on Wall Street saw Fairbanks lifting Chaplin on his shoulders to entertain the crowd. One article mentioned, Modestly, the stars did their stunts alongside the statue of George Washington and consented to share the honors of the day with him. The federal government obviously placed Chaplin and Fairbanks in front of a statue to the first U.S. president to imply that the morale-boosting efforts of Chaplin and company tied patriotically to the war effort. Some smaller-scale moments showed audience members obediently adoring the movie stars. One article reported that a little girl met Chaplin, Dresler, Fairbanks, and Pickford, saying, When Charlie Chaplin heard her say that he was just the funniest thing alive, he gave her a real Charlie Chaplin smile. Then he walked a bit just for her. Chaplin eagerly displayed his famous tramp shuffle for the little girl. In turn, journalists showed that movie stars bridged fantasy in their films into reality in their war effort work. Chaplin and the other movie stars impressed journalists and the public with their presence, which benefited the war effort as the federal government hoped. Even though they were happy to see the movie stars in person, audience members still felt disappointed that Chaplin looked different from his tramp character. One report said that Chaplin dropped his mask, laid aside his cane, kicked off his grotesque shoes, doffed his derby hat and ill-fitting clothes, and discarded the slapstick and gone out to do battle for America in the war for world freedom. Similarly, another report said that instead of wearing his funny little mustache, the funny fellow turned out to be a real nice-looking man who didn't even walk differently from other people. Though Chaplin never wore his tramp costume on the Liberty Loan Tour, journalists and audiences could only compare Chaplin to the tramp when supporting the war effort. They expected Chaplin to dress as the Tramp, which he instead supplied through his two war-themed films, since the Tramp could only exist on screen and not in person. Because his autobiography was published almost 50 years after the war ended, Chaplin may have misremembered what audiences thought of him during it. Like the Harrisburg pie prank, Chaplin described a similar event in a North Carolina town. The head of the reception committee confessed that he had boys at the station with custard pies ready to throw at me, but seeing our serious entourage as we got off the train, he had thought better of it. Clearly, eager audience members interacted with Chaplin as an extension of his movie identity. Chaplin was nervous to address crowds and said, I don't know why it is. It all is very strange to me. The way they flock to see me is just plain funny, isn't it? As most of his work up until that time had been in the film industry in California, the National Liberty Loan Tour offered Chaplin a first look at just how popular and beloved he was throughout the country. After returning from the Liberty Loan Tour at the end of April 1918, Chaplin made two movies months later to help the war effort, The Bond and Shoulder Arms. Both starred his familiar character, The Tramp. He thought about making a comedic film about the war, though his peers met the idea with doubt. According to Chaplin, fellow filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille told him, It's dangerous at this time to make fun of the war. Dangerous or not, the idea excited me. 
In the shorter propaganda film, The Bond, Chaplin stressed that a liberty bond could go far in supporting the American war effort. In the three-reel or 40-minute film, Shoulder Arms, Chaplin used more of a narrative filmmaking approach, typical to most of his prior filmography. While newspapers rarely promoted the bond, they usually gave Shoulder Arms glowing reviews. Chaplin himself never wrote about the bond in his autobiography, possibly because it wasn't important enough to detail. Once Shoulder Arms was released in October 1918, Chaplin defended his decision to his production company, First National Pictures. He stated that military life, especially during war, should be made fun of without criticizing the service. Chaplin explained why he went ahead with making Shoulder Arms. It was necessary to create action that would involve the ordinary daily events of a doughboy's life and make them appear really laughable. I decided that one central character, a typical boob recruit, could provide the situations by his own stupidity and difficulty in mastering the principles of soldiering, and properly draw into the mix-ups representatives of every rank and branch of the service. This idea, carried out in shoulder arms, brought the proper results, providing a score of novel situations without detracting in the least from the dignity of soldiering. Specifically cautioning that he wasn't poking fun of the military itself, Chaplin stated that he couldn't resist making a topical film about the war, even though he knew that no one had ever made a war comedy. It was a risk that paid off, though, as audiences and journalists sincerely approved of the movie. Both The Bond and Shoulder Arms were Chaplin's first but not last movies that reflected modern and political aspects in the world. Released at the end of September 1918, The Bond showed a more experimental side to Chaplin's filmmaking. It used elements more commonly seen in early German Expressionist films, such as plain sets and backgrounds. In the movie, bonds of friendship and marriage are worth preserving. But the Liberty Bond would lead to American victory and therefore German defeat. Halfway through the 10-minute movie, the Liberty Bond sequence begins, and shows that bare minimum donations could go a long way in supporting soldiers and defeating the enemy. Unlike other Chaplin films, the Tramp actually has money to give, which helps the American war effort. American civilian audiences, familiar with the often penniless Tramp, saw that if he could afford to buy a Liberty Bond, then so could they. Also, Chaplin broke down the Liberty Bond process to a somewhat basic core so American audiences could understand how far their money could go. When the Kaiser character is speaking, the tramp holds a giant mallet with the words Liberty Bonds written across it and hits the Kaiser over and over until he's knocked out. Even though he was no longer selling war bonds in person, Chaplin still participated in war effort work throughout the remainder of the war. In Shoulder Arms, Chaplin comedically showed the Tramp as an American soldier experiencing the war. The basic plot charts the Tramp training for, fighting in, and then winning the war. From training camp to France, the Tramp bumbles his way through many minor and major obstacles, like using ordinary objects such as a gas mask to uncover a smelly Limburger cheese, or being disguised as a tree to outsmart the German enemy. These gags pointed out situations actual soldiers may have found relatable. 
Like the Bond, Chaplin also showed the German enemy once again as caricatures not worth being taken seriously. The German officer of the unit on the other side of no man's land is punitive and puny. This portrayal was clearly a metaphor that Germans are not scary but are instead unmanly fools. The Tramp's love interest is a French damsel terrorized by the German enemy, assumingly a reference to the German military forcefully invading Belgium and France in the war. Ultimately, Chaplin served in the war effort by playing the Tramp as an American doughboy. Chaplin became so popular by 1918 that critics equated his films to high art. As one article critiquing Shoulder Arms said, We couldn't help pondering over the vast amount of time and study Chaplin must have put into this picture. For since we have known him, we know that each movie is a carefully planned and carefully rehearsed thing, the value of which is well determined beforehand. Unconscious as he appears always, and spontaneous because he is a great artist. He could, we are sure, do Hamlet as well, if he chose. That is why he differs from all other exponents of the slapstick. This journalist believed that Chaplin was above rough styles of comedy because he controlled how his movies were made. Another journalist compared Chaplin to other people making war-themed movies, but stated that shoulder arms had more substance. Journalists thought Chaplin's movies were highbrow art during the war because of his visibly patriotic and propagandist work in the war effort. At the same time, Chaplin's war effort work was complicated as an immigrant in the U.S. Though he only lived in the country within the last few years, Chaplin basically dove into American culture by the time the U.S. entered the war in 1917. As journalists pointed out, Chaplin was a British subject, but has made his fortune in America, has lived here and enjoyed the freedom and protection of the government, and has bought British and American war bonds in staggering amounts. Furthermore, journalists approved of Chaplin pledging to aid the American government to the limit of his ability. In the patriotic war effort, Chaplin paid back his years as a successful filmmaker to his adopted country. Years after the war, Chaplin met the Prince of Wales in London sometime in 1931. The prince asked if Chaplin was an American. No, I'm English. He looked surprised. How long have you been in the States? Since 1910. Oh, he nodded thoughtfully. Before the war. I think so. Even royalty assumed that Chaplin was American based on how long he lived in the U.S. He never gave up his British citizenship, even though he lived in the U.S. for over 40 years. He still helped in war effort work when needed, however. During the war, journalists from his birth country criticized Chaplin for not serving in the military. Chaplin himself commented on that criticism in his autobiography by casually saying that, Some newspapers criticized my not being in the war. Others came to my defense, proclaiming my comedies were needed more than my soldiering. Chaplin didn't mention which newspapers criticized him, and never mentioned in his autobiography why he didn't enlist. Instead, he claimed that he had a duty in making movies for morale. Chaplin didn't say who came to his defense, but based on the many newspapers reporting on him at this time, he had loyal fans and supporters everywhere. In 1921, Chaplin visited England and said in his autobiography that the wounded veterans that he saw in a hospital could barely move. It was terribly sad to look into those young faces, 
and to see the lost hope there. Some patients were in such a terrible state that I was not allowed to see them. Maybe Chaplin saw what could have happened to him if he served in the military during the war, but he didn't elaborate. Due to his constant participation in the Liberty Loan Tour, Chaplin became American through donating his time, money, and services to the war effort. He saw his civilian role more politically, which he wrote about in his autobiography 50 years later. He said about his first speech attempt in 1918, Never having made a serious speech before, I was nervous about it, but no sooner had I started speaking than the train began to move, and as it drew away from the crowd, I became more eloquent and dramatic, my confidence growing as the crowd grew smaller and smaller. Chaplin spoke about the German enemy to the crowd of 30,000 people on Wall Street. You people out there, I want you to forget all about percentages in this third liberty loan. Human life is at stake, and no one ought to worry about what rate of interest the bonds are going to bring, or what he can make by purchasing them. Money is needed. Money to support the great army and navy of Uncle Sam. How many of you men, how many of you boys out there, have bought or are willing to buy Liberty Bonds? However, onlookers said that anything in Chaplin's speech hardly mattered, as he was greeted by the applause of thousands of clapping hands and shouting voices. Related to his morale-boosting role, Chaplin wrote a letter to the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, William McAdoo. Need I say that I not only consider this to be my duty, but esteem the call as the highest honour that could be paid any man. Surely, Chaplin enjoyed the opportunity to use his voice meaningfully, even if years later he hated war. But during the war, Chaplin decided to give to the war effort as a fundraiser instead of serving as a British or American soldier. Because of his image, and his voice previously unheard in the silent films he made, Chaplin encouraged Americans to finance the war. Forever linked to movie history, Chaplin stayed in the spotlight for over 40 years and made movies until 1966. Repeating the standard that he set in 1918, Chaplin made a few movies that highlighted American history or modern topics at the time, such as The Gold Rush in 1925, Modern Times in 1936, and his first talkie, The Great Dictator, in 1940. The Great Dictator echoed many of the things he first included in his 1918 films, Shoulder Arms and the Bond, a world war, a foolish German dictator, and the tramp making a political stance to rally audiences. Chaplin's 1918 movies he released near the end of World War I still financially supported the war effort at the time, but he made the great dictator in suspense of another world war, as he certainly was nervous of another terrible result yet to come. By 1940, Chaplin didn't have the same popularity. Communist accusations took a toll on his reputation, which considered him undemocratic and unpatriotic of the country that had accepted him over 25 years earlier. Even though 1940s audiences suspected his left-wing beliefs and content in his movies, Chaplin's political voice was born from World War I. As a recent immigrant in the 1910s, Chaplin wanted to help the patriotic war effort in the best way he could. Doing so meant that Americans and the federal government accepted him. Instead of serving in the military during the war, Chaplin supported his new country by raising money and making movies to boost morale. 
Disturbed by World War I's destruction, Chaplin became a pacifist, like when he remembered that 1918 tour stop in Wall Street. New York was depressing. The ogre of militarism was everywhere. There was no escape from it. America was cast into a matrix of obedience and every thought was secondary to the religion of war. The false buoyancy of military bands along the gloomy canyon of Madison Avenue was also depressing as I heard them from the 12th story window of my hotel, crawling along on their way to the battery to embark overseas. After almost 50 years of reflecting on his wartime experiences, Chaplin added that the world had changed. Living without a war was like being suddenly released from prison. We had been so drilled and disciplined that for months afterwards we were afraid to be without our registration cards. Nevertheless, the Allies had won, whatever that meant, but they were not sure that they had won the peace. One thing was sure, that civilization as we had known it would never be the same. That era had gone. Gone too were its so-called basic decencies, but then... Decency had never been prodigious in any era. Though Chaplin supported the war effort as demanded of him, in the end, the First World War left an emotional wound, just like with the American civilians and soldier audiences who viewed him. Thanks for listening to the first installment of Showman's Land, written, produced, and hosted by me, Sarah Beagleson. I'd like to thank Paul Robinson for lending his voice to Charlie Chaplin and David Fine for recording Paul's voice. I hope you enjoyed learning about Chaplin's experiences during World War I. Feel free to visit the show's website linked in the description to discover photographs, see episode transcripts and sources, and more. Until next time, as the Great War Song says, goodbye! Crackling, or wants a flagging, and his little baggy trousers they want mending before we send him to the Dardanelles.